Welcome to Cato Audio for October 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Cato's Peter Gettler sits down with Fed Chairman Jerome Powell for a wide-ranging discussion. Economist and former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers gives his take on the new Cato book, Superabundance. And I sit down with Cato's Neil McCluskey to discuss his new book, The Fractured Schoolhouse. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. At the Cato Institute Monetary Conference, Cato President Peter Gettler spoke with Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell. They discussed inflation, monetary policy in a pandemic, cryptocurrency, and nominal GDP targeting. It's my honor and pleasure to welcome Fed Chair Jerome Powell to the conference. Along with Alan Greenspan and Ben Bernanke, he's now the third chair of the Federal Reserve Board of Governors to address the conference. Jerome Powell was first appointed as chair in 2018 and then reappointed this past spring. And he's no stranger to the Fed. Prior to his time as chair, he served as a member of the Board of Governors starting just over 10 years ago. The one certainty that seems to come with the position of Fed chair is that one will invariably face a time of great challenge. Paul Volcker confronted our last and worst bout of inflation. Alan Greenspan saw the stock market crash a mere two months after his confirmation. And Ben Bernanke led the Federal Reserve amidst the financial crisis of 2007 and 2008. And Chairman Powell, as we all know, has served throughout the COVID-19 pandemic and its aftermath, a period in which we've seen inflation reach its highest level in 40 years. As we've sat in front of Zoom screens over the past two and a half years, I'll just speak for myself. Many of us have watched as our hair has turned grayer, but few of us have as good an excuse for this as Chairman Powell. We're delighted to have him with us today and have a conversation about key policy issues, what he's learned, and the challenges now facing the Fed. Chairman Powell, it's good to see you today, sir. Welcome. Thank you very much, Peter. And thank you. To, go ahead. I don't think it's a failure of imagination on my part, nor do I believe anyone will be surprised that the first topic we turn to is inflation. Um, you know, as Jim mentioned, it seems policymakers were given, including at the Fed, were initially given a bit of a head fake on inflation. We heard policymakers ascribing the increase in, in price inflation to the pandemic and related supply disruptions. And while this has undoubtedly contributed, there seems a much stronger consensus now that it's been in larger part policy. <clears throat> Can you discuss for us or give us some insight into how your thinking evolved on, uh, on this topic over the last year and a half and how those conclusions may have, uh, may have evolved as well? So, Peter, thank you. And Jim, thank you. And congratulations to both of you and to Cato on 40 years of, of great uh, monetary policy conferences. So I, I think a good entry point for, for that question, Peter, is to start by recalling that before the pandemic, uh, unemployment was at a 50-year low, inflation was low and stable, and the economy was growing stable, sorry, steadily, uh, with no obvious imbalances threatening continued expansion. So of course, in that sense, None of this high inflation that we see around the world now would have happened without the pandemic. Um, uh, the pandemic severely disrupted the economy, gave rise to risks of much more dire economic consequences than actually transpired, really. And that was thanks in part to the policy response. So um, to start with policy, there's no question that policy certainly supported strong demand. But in my view, 
you would not have seen anything like the inflation that we have seen without the pandemic effects. And those pandemic effects include both shifts, shifts in demand and also playing a, a, a role in, not solely causing, but playing a role in the supply side constraints that emerged. So as for the pandemic, um, it, it did lead directly to an extraordinary shift in demand away from in-person services and to goods. And that shift, of course, was a major contributor to inflation in goods prices, which was really the main inflation story at the very beginning when when, when inflation broke out suddenly in March of, of uh, 2021. It's worth remembering that inflation actually declined in the early stage of the pandemic and then and then suddenly rose up in March of 21. Um, the pandemic also contributed to the constraints to constrain supply in a number of important ways, including uh, a large and persistent reduction in the size of the labor force, which contributed to extremely tight lab, uh, labor market conditions and upward pressure on wages. Also, the turmoil in global supply chains was probably caused by, to some extent, by pandemic-related shutdowns as well as strong demand, uh, and particularly goods demand. I, I think cars are, are a good example. So, yes, people had money and rates were low and demand for cars was strong, but also the pandemic shifted demand and, uh, shifted demand upward for cars because some people wanted to avoid public transportation. That amped up new demand. Uh, demand for new and used cars, and, and also the shortage of semiconductors for cars emerged from pandemic-related demand shifts as well. So, uh, you know, the bottom line for me uh, is that there's really a role for both here, and the two are tangled up in a, in a way that it's really not easy to disentangle. The, uh, you know, those of us who grew up in the 70s, uh, I think that the uh, danger and cost of inflation, you know, can't be exaggerated. Uh, in September of 1979, his first testimony, a month after he was confirmed, Paul Volcker made clear he understood that the damage that was being caused by inflation and the need to bring it down, even if it required uh, great costs in other, other economic ways. Uh, one of the lessons of that episode was the greater the extent to which inflation slips the leash, the higher the cost and greater economic damage necessary to bring it under control. Uh, I worry whether we have the resolve to bring inflation under control today to face the potential economic costs. I took some comfort from your recent remarks in Jackson Hall, which seemed an attempt to signal that kind of resolve. But I do remain concerned that, you know, the intense political pressure that might be brought to bear to avoid collateral eco economic damage before the inflation fight is won. And I, I just wondered if there is any way you can help me sleep a little bit better on that score. Um, sure. So I think it's worth going back and remembering, uh, and I pointed this out in my remarks last week, two weeks ago at Jackson Hole, 10 days ago, that uh, what Paul Volcker did and the Fed did to finally get inflation under control followed several failed attempts to get inflation under control. And, and what had happened over the course of that long period of the great inflation is that the public had really come to think of higher inflation as the norm and to expect it to continue and that's what what made it so hard to get inflation down in that case. So it, it is very much uh, our view and my view that we need to act now forthrightly, strongly, as we have been doing. And we need to keep at it until the job is done to avoid that. We think we can avoid the, the kind of very high social costs that, that Paul Volcker and the Fed uh, had to bring in, into play in order to get inflation back down and set us up then for, for a long period of, of price stability. Um, you know, that, that, that speech, the, the point really there was 
to deliver a, a, a speech that was narrowly focused on inflation, more direct and a lot shorter than a typical Jackson Hole speech. And I thought w- that what was appropriate was a very, you know, kind of concise and fo- focused message. To your question, uh, the message really was that the Fed has and accepts responsibility for price stability, by which we mean 2% inflation over time. That, again, to your, to your question, the longer inflation remains well above target, the greater the risk that the public does begin to see higher inflation as the norm. And that has the capacity to really raise the costs of, of getting inflation down. So finally, history cautions strongly against prematurely loosening policy. I, I can assure you that my colleagues and I are strongly committed to, to this project and, and we will keep at it until the job is done. I can also assure you that we never take into consideration external political uh, uh, considerations. You know, we, we, we are accountable to the public through Congress. That's, that's a very fundamental, important aspect of our work. But it, it, we, we do not, we, we focus solely on the goals that Congress has given us. And that's what we're going to do here. I think that, um, you know, that's really important because it's, it's clear that we could see, you know, political pressure coming to avoid economic costs when there could be claims from political players that, you know, inflation is back in its box, you know, long, long, long before it is. Um, Jim mentioned in his opening remarks that two years ago you moved to a to a new framework, flexible average inflation targeting, and I'm I'm bringing this up now because uh, again, just reiterating the point about trying to sleep better at night. You know, by many accounts, this move has created some more uncertainty in the market, as as you mentioned, and coming at a time when inflation now has increased so markedly. It creates concern that despite your stated resolve, the commitment to price stability has become less strong. Um, you know, should there be should you consider modifications to this framework to assuage these concerns and better manage short term expectations? So the the framework um, we we uh, began the work on the new framework in uh, 2018, and we announced uh, the results in August of 2020, and it really followed 25 years basically of global disinflationary forces. And, and the, the problem was that monetary policy rates were, were close to the effect of lower bound much too much of the time, much too close, and even during good times. So that meant that central banks uh, were having a hard time all over the world, you know, finding ways to support the economy when it was needed. And that's why central banks, including the Fed, resorted to things like forward guidance and asset purchases. So that's that's why we did that. But the changes that we made were were sort of very, a very mainstream part of, of of a literature around makeup strategies. But but really, the point of our framework changes, the point of all of them, was to, and we said this very clearly, was to have inflation expectations well anchored at two percent. That the, the the average inflation targeting idea was meant to support having inflation expectations. That is the goal at two percent, and the reason is that we believe that the public's expectations of future inflation will play an important role in the actual path of inflation. So that's the that is kind of the fundamental basis of our framework and to you know as I just discussed it is very important that inflation expectations remain anchored. I think the evidence today is that if you look at longer term expectations uh, by households, businesses and forecasters and also markets you'll see that they are pretty well anchored around 2%. Of course, short term expectations are, are higher because of high current inflation and also 
the clock is ticking. As I mentioned, the longer that uh, inflation remains well above target, the, the greater the concern that the public will start to just naturally incorporate higher inflation into its economic decision making. And our job is to make sure that doesn't happen. And we're committed to doing that job. It seems to me there's a chance it, 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 that the uh, there's there's a real risk that the labor market, uh, <clears throat> that the labor shortages persist. Does that create a risk that um, takes some of the ability to manage this process out of your hands? To the extent that there continue to be labor shortages, does that then feed into expectations that the public has about inflation, as you mentioned very prominently? Uh, well, I think you, I think you're right that if if it does turn out that we are in a world of a persistent labor shortage over time, that will be that'll be a challenging world for companies, and and it will certainly create upward pressure on wages and that sort of thing. Uh, today, the labor market is demand is very very strong still in the labor market. We're still um, printing new payroll job numbers at a high level. Wages um, are are running at at elevated levels and. Um, so we think by uh, uh, by our our policy interventions, what we hope to achieve is a period of growth below trend, uh, which will take which will cause the labor market to get back into better balance, and then that will bring wages back down to levels that are more consistent with two percent inflation over time. That's that's what we're trying to achieve. Um, the shock to labor supply that we got from the pandemic was large and unexpected and unfortunately persistent. I will say that just in the very last um, in the very last uh, labor market report that we got last Friday, we did see uh, a welcome increase in labor force participation. Nonetheless, still a full percentage point below where it was before the before the crisis. And I, I think it's important as a society that we that we have measures in place to to support uh, a strong labor market and high labor force participation. And that goes beyond, you know, what we can accomplish with monetary policy. You've, you've made some contrast to how things are different today. What's different today from the, you know, the, the high inflationary period of the late seventies and, and early eighties. Uh, I guess some other distinctions are, I remember as a student in Boston in the early eighties, in the days before the internet, um, I remember seeing people actually line up at the Fidelity office to see the monetary aggregates released on a weekly basis. And, uh, you know, the way the money travels through the economy has changed dramatically since Milton Friedman first said that inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. I'm just wondering, how do you respond when people look to the huge spike in government spending and say, I think you answered this in part in, in, in the first question, but that, you know, when you look at the huge spike in spending and say the Fed's printed all this money, so of course we have inflation. So I, I too, I graduated from college in 1975, uh, which was close to peak monetarism. And there, there was quite a focus on monetary aggregates. And I, I recall it just as you do. Um, so to, to, to go to this current situation. So as part of our response to the pandemic, we did resort to uh, large asset purchases to address what were pretty severe disruptions in markets, and then also to support the economy and our balance sheet expanded dramatically. But remember that our our purchases of securities don't actually increase the, the quantity of, of government obligations held by the public. They really change the mix because we issue bank reserves to pay for those securities. So we're not changing you know, the, the quantity of, of obligations. 
That is not to say that that money growth wasn't high. It was, of course, extraordinarily high in 2020 and then slowed down in 21 and now is now is quite sluggish. And I, I guess I would just say say it this way. Um, whatever caused, you know, there are different theories on what caused the inflation that so suddenly jumped up uh, out of the ground in March of 2021. Whatever that cause was, the relationship between the money supply and inflation, economic output, has been uh, much more unstable than it was in Friedman's day for a very long time. And so uh, literally changes in monetary aggregates have, have not had a consistent, reliable relationship. They haven't been a good predictor of the economy or of inflation. Now, of course, the economy is ever changing and, and that too could change. Uh, you know, to where it is uh, important again. But but for now, and for, for really many years now, monetary aggregates don't play an important role in our formulation of policy. And we don't think they're generally a good way to think about policy or about inflation. It's more about demand and supply and things like that. Um, so that that's that's uh, where we would be on that. I, um, that, that actually calls to mind, you know, at Cato, we do have a strong aversion to a fully discretionary fiat money system. And so we do like to socialize and promote alternative frameworks that could <clears throat> policy and a market direction that eliminates some of this discretion. Jim mentioned that a consistent theme over the years of this conference has been, um, you know, potential potential monetary rules. Um and, you know, that kind of calls into question whether inflation and prices are really the best targets to use for monetary policy. Uh, some folks have advocated for a rules-based system, such as, you know, targeting nominal GDP is something we've heard a lot about in recent years, partly because, as you say, monetary policy is not suited to address, you know, su- well suited to address supply shocks. Uh, could you share with us some of your thoughts of, of that type of approach and whether it's something that, that uh, you, you would consider? So more broadly on rules, of course, um, Taylor rules have become part of the fabric of economic analysis and particularly monetary policy analysis in ways that that must be far greater than John Taylor could have hoped when he wrote his original article in uh, 1993. So, but but we no central bank and the Fed has never explicitly tied our monetary policy decisions to any formula, including Taylor rules. But Taylor rules, nonetheless, are, are ubiquitous in in all of the work that we do, you, you have to have a variable, or, you know, a way and a model of, of explaining how monetary policy will react and some kind of Taylor rule is now they're very much part of the way we think. In terms of nominal income targeting, and I, by the way, I know that Cato and, uh, is, is one of the home courts for nominal income targeting along with Mercatus and some others. And um, I, I know that this is a, a lot of well-known experts, many of them at, at your institution, um, you know, do support nominal income targeting. And, and I'll just say that, you know, we've looked at that, I've looked at that and really come to the view that uh, that nominal income targeting is not the right way to go. And I'll try to explain why. By the way, I, I know that uh, these arguments are well known to nominal income targeters and will be found to be unpersuasive. But nonetheless, I'll just give yeah. you my, uh, yeah. my and, one, and one thing I would interject is that you know, we have debates internally as well. And I think for us, the concept really is more um, you know, wanting to socialize a number of alternatives and try to move towards alternatives that do have more of a market basis and, and again, remove, you know, remove discretion. Uh, to I, I think that's a very healthy process. And, uh, 
you know, the whole debate over many, many years about rules and discretion is is a uh, fascinating and important one that that is far from over. So it's really a mix of the two, I think that 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 but but getting getting to your to, to nominal income targeting, you know, we've got a dual mandate, maximum employment and price stability. And it comes down to is uh, nominal income targeting the best way to promote that? We don't think it is. I don't really think it is. And and part of that just is that it would be, I think, very difficult to explain to the public the relationship of a nominal income target, nominal GDP target to to those goals. It's just it's it's a level of complexity that, you know, even some economists and policymakers struggle with, let alone the general public. So it seems like it would be a reach to 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 sort of put that, you know, for, for us to have that be our fundamental um, uh, fundamental framework. And a, a couple of examples that would be difficult, one in particular would be, what do you do with changes in trend growth? We have, uh, uh, you know, highly uncertain estimates of, of levels of trend growth that we amend down through the years. And many years, you know, many years later, we may have very different view, but it is broadly understood, I think, or, or believed, thought that, that trend growth has declined consistent or considerably rather over the course of the last, well, since the global financial crisis. So how do you incorporate that into a nominal income target? Do you just raise the contribution of inflation or do you annually re-estimate trend growth? And if you do that, you're incorporating both communications issues, but also, uh, you know, just big chances of policy error because we just don't know these things with that kind of, we don't know any of the of the starred variables, so to speak, with with that level of certainty. So I'll just say, it's it's um, it's a re- really interesting and it works very well in in models, but it seems difficult to implement from a practical standpoint, and, and it's not something that we that we have chosen to do or that we you know, are currently looking at. You mentioned the dual mandate. Um, you know, I don't want to ignore the unemployment rate during this conversation. Um, you know, when I said earlier that you know we obviously have an aversion to a you know, fully discretionary monetary system. Many of us also regret the adoption of the dual mandate uh, in lieu of a strict focus on monetary stability. Um, The Fed's own website acknowledges that maximum employment is driven mainly by non-monetary factors. And if we accept that, does it really make sense for employment to be part of the Fed's mandate? So, Peter, as you know, uh, we are, uh, we're created by Congress in statute and Congress assigns our goals and it has assigned maximum employment and price stability. It's my view that the dual mandate uh, has served the public well and is generally workable. In particular, at the moment, I don't see the two goals as in uh, conflict at all because without price stability, we, we, we will not be able to achieve the kind of strong labor market that we want for a sustained period that, that benefits all. So I don't see a case for moving to to a single uh, mandate, but that's that's really a question for Congress, and you know we will we will we will of course implement whatever mandate Congress gives us. To your point about maximum employment, it, it's true that, and we do say that that uh, uh, and have for some time that non-monetary factors are really what drives the level of maximum employment, which clearly changes th- you know through the business cycle and over time. But we we can and do assess that and we do it transparency and and you know congress has said that should be a goal a co-equal goal with price stability so that's what we're implementing and again i wouldn't i i I don't think there's a strong case for changing that i don't think it hampers us in our pursuit and i think we can achieve both goals in the medium term 
you stole my follow-up because uh, you, you started out saying Congress sets the mandate. And so I, my follow-up was going to be, well, should the mandate, you know, should, should they consider changing the mandate? And I think you've uh, you've answered that. But uh, I guess a natural follow-up might be then that, you know, if the dual mandate weren't enough, there's been talk of adding more, um, you know, more more elements to, you know, the Fed's objectives, including <laughs> like racial equity that seem, you know, far from the Fed's ability to address. Uh, in addition, you know, the Fed's remit has expanded from the banking system to the broader financial system, and its regulatory responsibilities were widely expanded in the wake of the financial crisis. Uh, you know, how does continuing expanding the Fed's mandates not undermine focus on that fundamental responsibility of, of monetary stability, you know, beyond things such as that, you know, the employment element of the mandate? I, so I think our, our current mandate is appropriate, and I, and I do not, I would not want to see it narrowed or broadened uh, for that matter. We've got narrow and we've got well-defined goals that we're supposed to pursue. And what we get with that, what we've gotten with that is a precious grant of independence that lets us pursue those goals without direct political control. For monetary policy, that's maximum employment and price stability. And I think that dual mandate has served the public well. I, I, I really don't think it, it would not be a good idea to broaden it to goals that might be inconsistent with those two mandates, and it would be very difficult for us to achieve with our tools. More broadly than that, though, I, I think it's really important that we stick to our assigned tasks and resist the temptation to take on issues that are the province of elected representatives or of Congress. And if we do that, if we do stray from our core mandates, that will eventually undermine the case for our remaining independent. And I, th I think, you know, Fed independence is an institutional arrangement that has served the public well. And I think that's that's pretty well documented and accepted. I mentioned a couple of times, you know, our concern about a fully discretionary system. And and one of the biggest of those concerns is that in the face of you know large economic dislocations, um, you know, we've been running, you know, what really amount to unprecedented experiments. You know, I would I would cite the you know, quadrupling of the Fed's balance sheet in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis, and then, you know, doubling it again during the during the pandemic. Um, you know, to your credit, it was right before the pandemic that you were beginning to move towards reducing the balance sheet. Um, could you shed some light for us on, on where you hope to take the balance sheet over time? And, and, you know, what's the way that you, you know, really, really try to get there? Do you see the Fed ever moving back to a scarce reserve framework like it had before the 2008 crisis? Sure. So uh, in the last cycle, um, uh, after we ended our asset purchases, we froze the size of the balance sheet in 2014 and then allowed it to shrink passively relative to the size of the economy for about three years. So as the economy grew, <clears throat> the balance sheet didn't grow. Then in 2017, we began to allow uh, maturing assets to run off, and that process went on until 2019. Uh, by the end of that period, we had a balance sheet that was significantly smaller relative to the size of the economy and smaller than uh, than it was overall. So then we resumed asset purchases, as you know, 2020. And once again, now we are embarked on shrinking the balance sheet. And, and the test will be back to levels that satisfy the public's demand for our liabilities. That's currency and reserves and things like that. But also with reserves maintained at levels that are consistent with our ample reserves regime. So. The balance sheet is substantially larger now, obviously, and consequently, the runoff process is is designed to be substantially faster than in the last cycle, to the tune of on the order of a trillion dollars of runoff per year. 
That process began in June, once it's up to full speed. Process began in June, and the pace of the balance sheet increases, uh, actually rises this month. The, the, the plans are spelled out in detail on our website around the January and May meetings. And of course, one thing we always say is that we're prepared to adjust the details of the plan based on economic and market developments at any time. As far as uh, returning to a scarce reserve regime, I, I, I guess I would say that I, uh, I think that our current operating framework is, is a better one, and, and I don't see a case for returning to scarce reserves. Now, why is that? So the world has, has really changed as a result of the global financial crisis and the pandemic. The scarce reserves framework would be challenged to work in a world where there's very high and sometimes volatile demand for safe and liquid assets. Central banks may need to rely on large-scale asset purchases again from time to time in response to severe shocks. And and remember that, that the large financial institutions hold very, very large quantities of safe assets now as a liquidity buffer, and that includes a lot of reserves. So the bottom line is that the quantity of, of reserves is just so much higher. It's, it would seem to be impractical to try to manage scarcity, and demand will be volatile too. So it's just, it doesn't seem practical. And again, we think that the current system works well and provides a lot of liquidity to the system, which is kind of a net gain. Peter Gettler is president of the Cato Institute. Jerome Powell is chairman of the Board of Governors at the Federal Reserve. Among speakers at the Cato Institute event marking the publication of the new Cato book, Superabundance, the story of population growth, innovation, and human flourishing on an infinitely bountiful planet, Harvard professor and former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers. Summers discussed what he learned from Superabundance in a discussion at the Cato Institute in September. I'm flattered and honored by the invitation uh, to participate uh, in uh, this uh, book, I think that uh, I think that Pui and uh, Tupi have written a very, very important uh, book. It is important, I think, in three uh, respects. First, it adds to the growing uh, body of evidence and knowledge uh, that we have documenting that with all the problems, with all the travails, with all that we worry about, humanity does make staggering and immense uh, progress. I remark often uh, to students that all things considered, I would probably rather have the life and the opportunities of a lower income student in, uh, in the United States uh, in material terms than the life of John D. Rockefeller. The chance of suffering a fatal illness at a young age would be much lower. The range of foods that would be open would be much larger. The extent of the entertainment options 
available would be much greater. The comfort of being able to live in a room whose temperature was adjusted to suit would be vastly better for that student. The ability to get to a place three or five or six or 10,000 miles away quickly would be immensely larger. The number of things about which that person could learn would be far greater. The freshness, the range of foods that would be available to eat would be substantially more. And the comfort of the available clothing would be substantially uh, greater. And so I think it is immensely important to recognize the kind of progress. And while this is a point that has been made by a number of others, I have rarely, if ever, seen it made as extensively and as thoughtfully and in as many spheres as it is made in this important volume. Second thing that I think is very, very important is uh, the notion of time cost that this book uh, passes. There's something slightly odd about using the notion of time cash, time cost in a Cato Institute publication, since after all, it was Karl Marx <coughs> who put forward a labor theory of value and sought to explain the value of all things based on the extent of labor input uh, that uh, went into uh, them. But I think it is a very powerful way of uh, capturing the kind of progress uh, that we have all observed. The truth is that an hour of labor translates into far more in the way of goods that provide necessities for satisfaction, services that provide uh, utility, that has been the case at any point in uh, human history. And one doesn't have to believe in GDP figures, one doesn't have to believe in uh, markets, one doesn't have to believe very much in anything in economic science to see what has happened to the time cost of an immense array of goods and services and that is uh, documented in a very clear uh, way here. And I think it is an important contribution. And I hope that there will be continuing efforts of some kind to construct ongoing time series on a range of time costs for different goods at different times in different places so that one can continue to monitor 
this extraordinary uh, progress. I think the third thing that is important about uh, this book is the celebration of what are, in some sense, the greatest forces that have pushed human well-being uh, forward. Combination of technological and scientific inquiry and the decentralization and economies on information made possible by markets. It's an extraordinary truth that I always stress in teaching students economics. But there's not a single person anywhere on the planet who in an entirely self-sufficient way from their own knowledge to create a ballpoint pen, the ink, the liner, the tip, the packaging, the everything with all the inputs to those things. And yet we go into stores without the slightest hesitation or doubt that we will be able to obtain a ballpoint pen and obtain a ballpoint pen at negligible cost in terms of our effort. That idea that things can happen and progress can be made without central direction and without central plan is a crucial lesson, is perhaps the most important lesson in a different way from evolutionary uh, biology. And it is the most important lesson that comes out of a contemplation of uh, the market uh, economy. Design without overarching designers can achieve extraordinary uh, things. That is not, to me, a case for libertarian uh, viewpoints on uh, all questions, but it is a tribute to what we now understand about uh, the human uh, endeavor. The other book that was published beside this one in uh, the last month that made a huge impression on me was my student Brad DeLong's work, Slouching Towards Utopia, that highlights the dramatic turn that humanity took in 1870 when progress clearly was established in a way that overturned the Malthusian uh, devil. That is something that is profoundly important and is profoundly important to recognize whenever it is contemplated that something needs to be directed or to be planned. Now, if I have a difference with our authors, 
Um, it is not in their optimism. It is not in their overall vision. It is not in their rejection of Malthusian ideas. But it is in their libertarian bias. To say that markets and science produce tremendous, incredible outcomes is not to say that those outcomes cannot be made better through collective and planned action. And the great questions of our time in many ways involve what those actions should be, how they should be designed, what the role of incentives uh, should uh, be versus the role of coordination and uh, planning. As an economist, I share the author's bias for decentralization, but I think it is very important to consider each of these issues on a case-by-case -case, uh, basis. But we will all engage in that consideration much more wisely for the extraordinary collection of data and the extraordinarily powerful arguments presented in this important volume. I am honored to have been asked to give these uh, opening remarks, and I commend this important work to all who wish to understand the human condition and the prospects for its improvement. Thank you very much. Larry Summers served as U.S. Treasury Secretary from 1999 to 2001. In our Cato Audio exclusive this month, I speak with Cato's Neil McCluskey, author of the new book, The Fractured Schoolhouse, Reexamining Education for a Free, Equal, and Harmonious Society. If you have a topic you'd like us to discuss in this segment of Cato Audio, drop us a line at catoaudio at cato.org. In the long history of uh, public education in America, what do people today understand public schools what are they supposed to do? Well, there's a lot of disagreement about what public schools are supposed to do, uh, which is one of the problems with public schooling is the idea generally was that public schools would take diverse people, you know, different religious backgrounds, different ethnic backgrounds, um, different political backgrounds, and by having them all go to one kind of school, originally called the common school, they'd all kind of come to agreement on what everything is about, or at least the basics of, you know, what's it mean to be a good citizen? What is it we want out of education? What are the right values that everybody should share? Um, but it turns out that we don't agree that, and diverse people don't agree on all sorts of things. And one of those is what the school should even be about. 
So interestingly, you can look back at the founding fathers and their generation where you started to see people talk about some sort of public schooling. Uh, and there's disagreement even among them what it should be about. For instance, Benjamin Franklin thought that education shouldn't be what it had been about for many people, you know, learning Greek and Latin and, and these sort of abstract ideas and philosophies about life and the afterlife. He thought it should be about learning very concrete things, which is not a surprise because Benjamin Franklin was into concrete things like, you know, how's electricity work and inventing stuff. Uh, and so he thought education often was way too abstract. But you had other people um, who said, no, actually, the whole purpose of education is to build proper moral citizens. And it wasn't about, you know, learning engineering and not predominantly about math and reading, but it was learning about how to be a good moral person. And then there were lots of people in the middle. Uh, some founders had big debates about should you have the Bible in school? Some said Benjamin Rush, for instance, from Pennsylvania said, well, you got to have the Bible in school because the Bible is crucial and you should use it for teaching because everyone should know the Bible. But Noah Webster, uh, also a famous founding era uh, fellow from uh, New Hampshire, if I recall, um, he said, no, if you use the Bible as sort of an instructional tool, it trivializes it and it makes people lose respect for it. So the bottom line is really from day one, there hasn't even been agreement about what schooling and education is really for. And it's interesting. I follow you on Twitter and I watch, I watch occasionally uh, the conversations you have with people. And, uh, you know, one of the points that you make in your book and elsewhere is that uh, public education was meant to bring diverse groups of people together and. Uh, and give them some sort of a common understanding of the world. Is that is that a fair characterization? Yeah, for many people, again, there were lots of different goals. Sure, but, sure. Uh, one of the primary ideas, and depending who you talk to, but lots of people said make them similar. It could be holding the same ideas. It could be making them actually all have the same values. Some people talked about at least make people from different even parts of the country familiar with each other. But one way or another, a major idea was we're going to unify these sort of disparate people. And and the responses you get are, nope, Neil, you're wrong. You should really look into the history of public schooling in America. And of course, you sort of uh, jump, respond with, well, yes, I, I, I did, actually. And I wrote a book about it. <laughs> and yes. uh, and uh, but a lot of these people say, no, 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 Neil, you're wrong. The, the purpose was always indoctrination and this this uh, disparity between the notion of bringing diverse people together and giving them some commonality when they when they leave public schools and indoctrination. You know, it's to me, it's almost like six of one, half a dozen of the other, depending on your perspective. It could be one or the other. Yeah, which is I mean, uh... I don't understand why people see indoctrination as being fundamentally different from trying to make diverse people kind of similar, to bring them together. Uh, it depends on how, whether or not you want to, you know, interpret it as a bad thing or a good thing. So typically, if you say indoctrination, that's considered a bad thing, where the government is trying to force everyone to be the same through almost like brainwashing. 
if you want to put a good spin on it, you say, well, we're trying to build common values and common identity. But when it is a top-down system, when somebody says, you know, somebody ultimately with the power uh, to put you in jail, in particular, like government, says, no, you're all going to be the same in these ways, it's hard to not also see that as becoming indoctrination. Where I think people may have more of a point, but you don't see this much on Twitter, is while a lot of the sort of elites who talked about a public schooling system, a common schooling system, who did a lot to drive that system, while much of what they talked about was making people very similar in terms of what they meant by virtuous citizen and things like that, it is probably true, though, that most parents, most families who were often educating their kids, who were often doing it in a sort of a civil society institution, a school where people in the same neighborhood got together and said, let's build a building where we can have common things that we do, including education. They probably often had different goals. They probably often wanted their kids to, have to learn how to read and to write and do some level of math. And they were focused on the skills and not homogenizing everyone. So it's, it is no doubt true that not everybody was into this because of indoctrination, that probably many people wanted their kids to learn basic skills. But it is wrong to say that engineering unity in one way or another is somehow different from indoctrination. You may not have as bad an intent as that word implies, but it's still all the same thing from above trying to make people similar. All right. So, you know, with that as sort of the background, what do you recommend uh, for government schooling to the extent that to the extent that we understand that it exists? We've seen just in the last couple of years sort of bitter fights about what that must entail. And uh, for Republicans, a group of people who generally are supportive of school choice, they're uh, answer is often simply, well, you must teach the following things. You must not teach the following things. Yeah. So there's a, a then a mythology is built up about public schooling that it did actually unify diverse people, that it is the foundation of our democracy because it makes everybody a good citizen. This is all uh, has basically no historical evidence behind it. Um I'm sure you could find examples where people learned what was considered good citizenship in public schools because you had to pay for public schools. And lots of people would have taught their kids to be good citizens anyway. Um, but there certainly wasn't a lot of diverse people coming together. Um, if you go back even just to the 1930s, uh, there were about 100, and, I think it's 112,000 or 120,000 uh, school districts for about a third of our current population. Today, there are about 13,500 school districts for about triple the population. So you can even see in just the last 90 years or so how much bigger and more inclusive districts were, but that meant for most of our history, they were small and tended to include a homogeneous population. In New York State, I think around the 1850s or so, there were, I think it's about 12,000 school districts just there, although maybe it's 1,200. Either way, a lot of school districts um, just in that state. Again, and the history shows people tended to go to school with people exactly like themselves because they tend to live with people like themselves, which is actually very natural. It's not that we should say we don't want integration, but we also need to recognize that people tend to be more comfortable with people who speak their language, eat their food, have their culture. So these schools never really brought us together. 
But once they started to, when they did sort of incorporate diverse people, we found out that they don't agree often on what should be taught. And so they have to fight about it. Um, 1840s in Philadelphia, famously the Philadelphia Bible riots, where basically warfare in the streets of Philadelphia over whose version of the Bible, if any, would be in the schools. Scope's monkey trial in the 1920s was all about whether or not creationism or evolution would be required or not required, who would get to decide what happened in the schools. And then today we have these battles over what people call critical race theory or also gender ideology, lots of deeply or things that involve lots of deep values, lots of personal identities. And what we see are people fighting to decide who gets to impose what they think is right on others. And that is because the system requires that. If you have one district for diverse people, somebody has to decide what is taught. And so they fight over it. And Republicans, yes, have have more often been supportive of Democrats, although there have been many Democrats who've supported school choice. In the 60s, many progressives supported school choice. But what we've seen uh, now is split kind of among conservatives and Republicans is, do we focus on school choice, that is enabling people to get everybody to get what they think is right, or do we now focus on controlling school districts? And Republicans increasingly are saying, we're going to focus on controlling school districts. That means state laws like the you know, quote unquote, don't say gay law in Philadelphia. I mean, sorry, in Florida. Um, lots of similar legislation like that around the country. They want to control at the state level. And increasingly, they are setting up PACs and running for school districts so they can control school districts. And it's not because Republicans are suddenly mean or power hungry. It's because they recognize that they have to be involved in politics if they want the schools to teach what they want them to teach and not teach things they find uh, either offensive or immoral. Uh, I want to talk about uh, the history of American education through the lens of Catholics for uh, at least a, a couple of minutes here, because Catholics are intertwined in a whole lot of uh, issues related to what will be taught in schools and the extent to which parents. Uh, and religious institutions uh, should have some role in directing young people's educations. Uh, you write uh, in the second chapter of your book, the battle over Catholic, indeed all private education, reached its apogee in the U.S. Supreme Court's 1925 Pierce v. Society of Sisters decision. The case tackled an anti-Catholic Ku Klux Klan-backed referendum in Oregon that made public schools the only institutions in which families could satisfy compulsory education mandates. Catholics opposed it, as did many other religious and secular private schoolers. The Society of Sisters of the Holy Names of Jesus and Mary and the Hill Military Academy fought all the way to the Supreme Court, which in striking the law down famously stated that a child is not a, quote, mere creature of the state. Now, that established uh, the ability of and it's, you know, in our modern era of school choice, it's almost uh, unthinkable that the Supreme Court would have to weigh in on something so basic as parents uh, being able to direct in any substantial way their own children's education. But uh, that was the fight at the time, and it really feels like we've come uh, a long way since then. We absolutely have come a long way. I'm glad you mentioned Catholics because 
Uh, I see a lot of histories or sort of brief histories of education that are hagiography for public schools that at best either often they don't mention Catholics at all when they go through this idea that the public schools unified diverse people. Or I saw, for instance, uh, former NPR reporter Anya Kamenetz had something in the New York Times that said, well, you know, it's terrible that people are are angry about public schools, even though they clearly failed us under COVID. Um, but you've got these kind of uh, fringe types who really want school choice and they're using COVID as an excuse. And one of the things she said is, and many of these are Catholics who feel an attachment to their parochial schools. And then goes on to wax poetic about how great common schooling is. And you cannot write about the history of American education and say it was unifying and just say, you know, Catholics kind of like parochial schools. There is a huge history there. So I mentioned the Philadelphia Bible riots. That was because Catholics use a different version of the Bible than Protestants in as different books. There are different orders for some things. And they said, and they need to have the official church interpretation. And they said, we can't use the Bible in the way that you want us to use it in these schools. So they have the these, again, really warfare in the streets, two waves of it over this. You have a kind of Protestant country where people are highly suspicious of Catholics. And so that goes on. Until, you know, when you talk about Pierce Free Society Sisters in the 1920s, the Ku Klux Klan said, we shouldn't allow private schooling because that doesn't teach people to be good Americans. In particular, we should not allow Catholic schooling because Catholics are not good Americans. Uh, and so Pierce Free Society Sisters says, you know, you can actually have private schools and those can uh, meet your requirements for, for compulsory education. Um, but you still have problems of Catholic schools and Catholics don't fit in with what are de facto Protestant public schools in many places. That actually doesn't change until the 1960s when there are other Supreme Court cases that say not really about Catholicism, but about religion, but that religion tended to be kind of a pan-Protestant theology. They said, you can no longer have required prayers in public schools. You can no longer start with a prayer in public schools. And that, only then do you start to see, well, okay, these become a little bit better for Catholics or, you know, for, for Jewish folks, although there's a whole history there about how they worked with public schools, but because public schools were largely local, they weren't imposing things uh, often on the Jewish community. But that's when you start to see more people say, okay, this is okay if I don't want religion. But it's also when you start to see a big growth that we're still seeing now in non-Catholic religious schools, in particular, a big growth in uh, sort of evangelical Protestant schools, but lots of other Protestant schools. Uh, you also see a growth in Jewish day schools. And so when all religion is removed from the public schools, what you see is, yes, it is less uh, troublesome for some particular religious groups, but then all religious groups but in particular, the sort of Protestants who had controlled public schools, they say, now we can't use them. We need something else. So you cannot understand how public schooling actually worked if you don't talk about Catholics and if you don't talk about religion and how important it is for many people to be able to get the religion they want in their education, which they cannot do in public schools. We uh, are sort of jumping around in time here, but even prior to uh, the Pierce case, Pierce v. Society of Sisters, James G. Blaine, the U.S. Senator from Maine, proposed a constitutional amendment 
to prohibit, in uh, his words, from schools being controlled by religious sects or denominations. And that was essentially a euphemism, for the most part, of for Catholics. That's right. So, and, and having and he fa- he fa- that amend- U.S. constitutional amendment failed, but many states for many years had so-called Blaine amendments on their books, and uh, many still do. That you know, until very recently, until recent U.S. Supreme Court uh, cases uh, would have prohibited any kind of uh, allowing parents to direct state funds to send their kids to a religious institution. That's right. And so it's true. So James D. Blaine had a problem with Catholic schools. Um, uh, we don't know about, you know, how personal he had animus toward them versus he thought it was politically expedient uh, to make them an issue. But sectarian definitely meant Catholic because the sort of assumption was that a proper American was Protestant. And so the public schools were de facto Protestant. They didn't usually break along specific denominational lines, although because public schooling was still very local, public schools were often sort of tailored to whatever community they were working with. Um, But they were all expected to be Protestant. So Blaine amendments were really about keeping Catholics from being able to have school choice, which is that public money would follow them to the schools that were consistent with their values to to Catholic schools. Um, but yes, the certainly jurisprudence has long moved more and more in the direction at the federal level of more freedom in education, including more religious freedom. And so you have a few cases, Espinosa v. Montana a couple of years ago, and then Carson v. Macon, uh, at the most recent Supreme Court uh, session uh, that said, look, a school, a state doesn't have a school choice program, but if you do, you cannot say people can't choose a religious school. If you have an amendment that says that, that is discrimination against religion, and that includes if it's religious status or actually acts on its religion. All right. The book is The Fractured Schoolhouse Reexamining Education for a Free, Equal and Harmonious Society by Neil P. McCluskey. Uh, And one programming note, if you would like us to have a conversation uh, on this segment of Cato Audio, where we uh, discuss uh, its exclusive content to Cato Audio, uh, you can send that to catoaudio at cato.org. Neil McCluskey directs Cato's Center for Educational Freedom. He is the author of the new book, The Fractured Schoolhouse, Reexamining Education for a Free, Equal, and Harmonious Society. In the Cato Supreme Court review, leading legal scholars analyzed the most important cases of the Supreme Court's most recent term. Now in its 21st edition, the review is the first scholarly journal to appear after the term's end and the only one grounded in the nation's first principles, liberty and limited government. The latest edition covering the 2021-22 term is available now online and at retailers and, of course, at cato.org slash store. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.